For those of you who may be visiting with us, we have been studying a series of lessons from the book of Galatians. And we've entitled the series, The Good News, that is the Gospel, Goes to the Galatians. This morning we're going to be studying that portion of scripture from which Brother Robert just read in Galatians chapter 1. And I've entitled this lesson, Good News Changes a Mean Man. When I say a mean man, I don't know what comes to your mind. In my mind, I think in my own personal experiences, to those people who may have been my immediate superiors at work. I don't know if any of you have ever had a boss who was mean. Uh, I had a mean boss, but she was a woman instead of a man. Sometimes you may think of a school teacher who was mean and heartless and did not care. For just a few moments, I'd like to focus your attention on a mean man from the Old Testament. If you'll turn your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel chapter 25. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background of what's taking place. Saul is now angry, and he is pursuing David wherever he can try to find him. Saul wants to kill David. David and the men who are traveling with him have traveled north to what's referred to as the Jezreel Valley, right at the foot of Mount Carmel. Beautiful, lush area, good for grazing livestock, wonderful place to live. And he comes into an area, and then we learn from verse 2. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was a house of Caleb. Now, as you begin to think about this man, he was very rich. He had evidently acquired a whole lot in his lifetime. People's wealth during those days was not measured in the amount of money they had into a bank, but was measured in their ownings, their livestock, like Abraham was in Genesis 13 and verse 1. You think of 3,000 sheep, Just the shearing of those sheep alone would be a tremendous uh, amount of money. And so he was very rich, and he was described as the husband of Abigail. Her description is the fact that she was a woman of good understanding. She understood the way things worked in this life. We're going to observe later on she is going to be an intercessor for her husband who's not really worth the trouble. And the third thing you learn is that he was harsh and evil in his doings. He's the kind of man that if you said something to him, would answer you and his answer would almost knock you back. He's the kind of man who had no concern for how people took him, 
or how people would think about him. Now, if you drop down with me to verses 10 and 11, David and those who are with him have been protecting the workers who work for Nabal. They have been making sure that everything with them was going okay and they needed some supplies and so they kindly requested that Nabal and his people provide some sustenance, just some food and some water. It says, Then Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who I did not know where they are from? You see, Nabal looked at David and he says, This is my stuff. It's not yours. You don't deserve any of it. He answered him roughly. I think he also hinted at some things. First of all, he said, Who is David? I don't know you. I don't respect you. I don't respect where you are from, the son of Jesse. Oh, but he did know who he was. Because if you'll remember, after David slew Goliath, they said Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Oh, he knew who he was. He also hinted the fact that Saul was seeking his life. He says there are many servants nowadays who break away each from his own master. Oh, David, you're just a runaway slave. Saul's right in pursuing you. You don't deserve to live. And so he says, I'm not giving you anything. Now, that report was given to Abigail. And here's a woman of good understanding. She knows that things are not going to go well for her harsh, mean husband. And so one of the young men told Abigail, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he has reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us both by day and night all the time we were keeping sheep. Oh, there you begin to understand. David and his army have been taking care of Nabal and his sheep. And she goes on to say harm has been considered. Nabal was just a mean man. Because of the intercession of Abigail, David didn't kill Nabal. Sometimes when we start thinking about mean people, I think about Nabal in the Old Testament, how mean he was. When I get to the New Testament, there's another person I think about when I think of meanness. It's Paul. Oh, you mean the Apostle Paul, who is the preacher of the gospel? Yes, he was a mean man. For just a few minutes, here's what we want to look at. We want to look at the actions of a mean man. Paul and Luke are going to describe how mean Paul was, what all he did. We need to just briefly survey all of this. But you see, something changed in Paul There was a great change that took place 
about Acts chapter 9. And there was the attitudes of a changed man. What caused that change? Can that change be affected in you or in me? Then number three, the aggressiveness with which he began to serve the Lord. Let's begin, first of all, let's look again at verses 13 and 14. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of the fathers. Now as we begin to look at this, you have to recognize this is the pre-Christian Paul. This is before he became a Christian. This is when he was serving Judaism. And you say, well, why is Paul bringing all this up in the book of Galatians? It's because some of these people with whom he is writing are wanting to revert back to Judaism. And he was wanting to say, I don't want to go back. I know who that old man was. He had a dangerous combination of zeal on the one hand and error or ignorance on the other. You see, the truth is, that's a real dangerous combination in a number of ways. Here's a man who comes to your house and you're having some electrical problems. And he says, I know what I'm doing. And he goes to your electric box and opens it up and begins to take screwdrivers and pliers and stick them in there. He said, I can fix this. But if he doesn't know what he's doing, he's dangerous. The same thing is true if you take a religious person and you put a lot of zeal in him. And he doesn't know what he's doing. Do you remember Paul in Romans chapter 10 and verse 2? For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Oh yeah, there's people who are zealous, and that is a dangerous combination in Paul. Well, as Paul himself describes this, let's go to Acts chapter 22 and look at verses 1 through 5. You know, Paul had been arrested in the temple he had been taken by the Roman authorities. He had asked for the permission to speak to them, and he does. And here's how he's going to address it. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke in the Hebrew language, they became all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our Father's law, and was zealous toward God as you are all today. Now listen as he begins to explain. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. As also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I received letters to the brethren to, and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul said, you want to know how angry, how mean I was. He says, I persecuted the church to the death. 
Paul was so angry, he's like a lot of the people in our country this morning who are angry about a lot of things, and they're willing to be violent, to be mean for ideals. And some of them would have no difficulty taking somebody else's life because of those ideals. You see, there are angry people in many places. And Paul said, you want to know how angry it was? He says, I was binding and putting into prison both men and women. It's not as enough that he's just angry. He is now going to go to foreign cities to do that. He went to Damascus a long way off to bring people back and put them in prison. Luke records this. In Acts 9, or Acts chapter 7, verse 59 through chapter 8 and verse 3. Here's the way he records it. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Saul was consenting. Yes, kill him. At that time there arose a great persecution against the church that was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. I want you to know how serious this was with Paul. He would come to your house and he would say, are you a Christian? Yes. All right, to prison you go. I mean, with him, it wasn't a matter of maybe or maybe not. His behavior was so bad that it scared the Christians. He's the kind of man, if you saw Paul walking up to your door, you'd be saying, where can I go hide? In Acts 9, verses 1 and 2, he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord when he went to ask for letters to the synagogue to Damascus. God is going to send Ananias to him. Look at verses 13 and 14. Then Ananias said, Lord, I have heard how much, or from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. Lord, are you sure you want me to go to this mean man? Finally, as Paul stands before King Agrippa and before Festus the governor, he is going to rehearse one more time the attitude, the actions that he had had previous in life. Indeed, I myself thought that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem and Many of the saints I shut up in prison and received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Now I want you to listen carefully to verse 11. 
And I punish them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He would go to every synagogue. Is there anybody here who believes in Jesus? If you raised your hand, he would compel you to blaspheme the name of Jesus. You say, well, how did he do that? Paul was a mean, violent man. I don't think it would bother him at all to hit you. It wouldn't bother him at all to see that you were killed. And the term that he uses with Agrippa, I was exceedingly enraged against them. I want you to imagine the Muslims that are in Syria and portions of Iraq and Afghanistan and some in Pakistan who would have no problem this morning if you were before them to say, are you a Christian? Yes. Bring the sword here. Let's cut his head off and let's send a picture of this to his family. That's how mad and how angry and how mean Paul was. When he looked back on the life that he had now lived, he did so with great regret. When he wrote the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, he says, I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Oh, I know God called me, but I'm not worth it. Or, for instance, when he wrote Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 13, he said, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now you can say, I I think I got your point now. I I believe that I understand Paul was a mean man and he lived it out in his everyday life. But now Paul changed. There was something that changed in Paul that made him a different person. Let's explore for just a few moments verses 15 through 17. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. The truth is, God had a plan for Paul. When did that plan begin? Paul said, God separated me from my mother's womb. Even before Paul was born, God knew that he wanted to use Paul. Oh, that's not new. You remember what he told Jeremiah? When you were in your mother's womb, I called you and appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
You remember John the Baptist while he was in uh, his mother's womb? Was also filled with the Spirit. Oh, Paul here has been chosen by God, but Paul is now a persecutor. There's something that needs to take place. He's got to be changed. He's got to be converted. You've got to harness that zeal, that enthusiasm that he has. So Paul will describe his call, his conviction, and his conversion. And really it falls in that order. In fact, this almost became the three points for the lesson I was going to preach. The call, the conviction, and the conversion. Because you see, God is going to call Paul to do a job. But he's not just calling him to do a job. He's calling him to become a Christian. To become a child of God. Oh, Paul was a Jew. He was a part of God's children, but I'm calling him for something special. But before Paul can be of any use, he has to answer the call. It's just like God's going to call every man through the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 14. But it's only those people who act upon that call who will look at themselves and say, yes, I need to do something that will do it. Paul will describe the conviction that took place in his life. He became convinced, I'm a sinner. Jesus is the Christ. He's the only way for me to be saved. And then number three is conversion. You see, a lot of people would say, as soon as Paul recognized that Jesus was the Christ, he was saved. Oh, no, that's not what Paul says. He talks about his conversion that took place not on the road to Damascus, not as he prayed what some people might call a sinner's prayer, but when he arose and was baptized. And he said, okay, well, I want you to see that then. In Acts 9, 3 through 9, and again, because of time, I'm going to swiftly summarize some of this. Paul is making his journey. There's a light that's shining down from heaven. And there's a message that comes from Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Folks, there's no doubt Paul was going to persecute Christians, the followers of Jesus. And now the voice comes from heaven, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Look at verse 6. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? That's such a profound question because the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, folks, you need to put you a big exclamation point there in your Bible. You know why? Because Paul was not converted here. Paul was told, you go into the city, you'll be told what you must do. And they led Paul into the city. In Acts 22, which we looked at it just a few moments ago, as Paul is rehearsing with the Jews what he did, he said in chapter 22 and verse 6, again, he came to Damascus, on near Damascus, it's about noon. 
great light shone from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, what shall I do, Lord? Verse 10, Lord said, arise, go to Damascus. There you will be told things which are appointed for you to do. He goes there, verse 12. Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, with all the, according to the law, having a testimony of, with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. The same hour I looked up at him. Now I want you to notice verse 16. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Wash away your sins. You go to the city, you'll be told what you must do. He goes to the city, Ananias tells him what he must do. What does Ananias say? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. In Acts 26, again before King Agrippa, he tells King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision. He goes on to say that uh, what I was told that he said, verse 17, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. You see, God said, now what I learned is not only what, what I needed to do to be forgiven of my sins, but now I've got an obligation to go and tell other people what they must do that they can be forgiven of their sins. And he says, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. This is what God told me to do. What has changed in Paul is the focus. His focus previously was to persecute anybody who did not stand up for the traditions of my fathers. You see, that's what Paul in verse 13 had said he was zealous for. But now he says, I'm not zealous for the tradition of my fathers. I'm zealous for Jesus. When he wrote the Philippians in chapter 3, he talked about his heritage, his pedigree in verses 4 and 5. But verse 7 says, But what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. And yes, indeed, I count all things for loss for the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see, the things that were so important to Paul, now they're, they're garbage to be cast out, to be destroyed. Now Paul wants to preach the gospel to everyone. He went from being the persecutor to willingly being the persecuted. Oh, he talks about the things that he suffered. He said in verse 25 or 24 of 2 Corinthians 11, he says, from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have been in the deep. 
and journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Why did Paul suffer all these things? He said, there's been a change in me and who I am. He said in verse 10 of 2 Timothy 2, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that I may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul said, whatever it takes, that's what I'm going to do. What changed Paul? Before he had believed that Jesus was a fraud and that everybody was following Jesus was an idiot. In fact, they were so dumb they needed to be persecuted. Now he's learned Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. With that, he became aggressive in proclaiming the gospel. He considered it a privilege now to stand before men and proclaim the message of the cross. He would say in Ephesians 3, 8, To me who am less than the least of all saints, was this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see, with Paul, it was all important to be able to preach and to teach the gospel. He considered it a spiritual war. That is where you're fighting against the wickedness of this world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Yes, he stands up and he's willing to fight the good fight of faith. And why did he do this? Because he considered what was at stake. You see, before, he would look and he would say, what was at stake is the existence of Judaism. If we're not careful, we're going to lose our Judaism. But something much more precious than that is at stake. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul knew that there's going to come a day in which everyone, man, woman, child, will stand before the God of heaven. And I've got to prepare them for that time. The good news can change people. It can take people who are mean and turn them into good people. No longer angry and mean. Ephesians 4.32 Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted to forgiving one another even as God in Christ also forgave you. That doesn't mean you've lost your passion. Paul didn't lose his passion. 
it changed from wanting to kill men to save men. Paul said, and I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I'll do whatever it takes. Because now I know the most precious thing in this world is not Judaism, but is the soul of every man, woman, boy, and girl. I want to end with the souls of men. On that day of Pentecost, as Peter was preaching that first gospel sermon, we learn in verse 41 of chapter 2, those who gladly received his word were baptized. That day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Since that time, it's been one here, two here, maybe three, five, ten. Acts 9, as well as recorded in Acts 22, when Paul got to Damascus after three days of praying, Ananias told him, Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And what the Lord did was another one was added. What about you? We have those here who need to obey the gospel, who need to be baptized. It's with all the passion and the concern and the love for your soul that we can express we want you to be saved. But more importantly, God wants you to be saved. You've seen clearly that a person must be baptized for the remission of their sins. You do that because you believe that Jesus is the Christ, because you're willing to confess Him and repenting of your sins. You probably, many of you, done that already. Some of you are struggling with sin in your life, and you need to take care of it. We'll be glad to pray with you. Would you come while together we stand and sing?